American is a complex of occasions, themselves a geometry, spatial nature. I have this sense that I am one with my skin. Plus this, plus Um, one of the perks of this podcast I'm already starting to realize is I get personalized or uh, individual readings. Um, I wasn't aware that that was going to be the case. That was not my selfish intention, but uh, here I am kind of reaping the benefits of it. So that's sick. Nice. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be here. And thanks. Uh, you know, it's a real honor to, to you know, to to have a chance to speak yeah. no i'm happy to talk with you and happy to uh you know let you promote your new book you got coming out in march you said yeah yeah it'll be out sometime in march well tell us a little bit about that because um i think i've been kind of out of the loop there too uh being off uh twitter really has been hard to keep on top of like publishing and stuff like that so tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about your book and uh and like uh maybe like you mentioned it was also a little bit of like older work that you've been setting on for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, the book's called Fugue and Strike and also congratulations on not being on Twitter. That's probably <laughs> all, all for the good. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it has two dimensions to it. You know, the, the strike bit is a, is a long essay that's interspersed, um, with poems, uh, and, I wrote that in 2000, between 2018 and 2019, uh, when I was working at the uh, Industrial and Labor Relations Library at Cornell University. Um, and they just have this marvelous archive of labor research, labor publications. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, it was just sort of boot camp for understanding, you know, labor history. and. And I got really interested in uh, garbage strikes, sanitation strikes, um, for for a number of reasons. Um, but I've always been interested in in the sort of like most abased uh, forms of work, um, or what is perceived as such. Um, and and I just started like pulling this thread and and finding um, the ways in which you know. Uh, these sanitation strikes and strikes of sanitation workers had had taken place over time in various contexts. There's often like sort of the racialization of the workers involved in it. So, so that's packed in there. You know, class is an enormous part of it, as they're often like the worst paid municipal workers. Um, and also it's like it, it's reproductive work, you know, like we have to get rid of our trash, you know, uh, to live, right? So it's like involved in, in, in the, you know, the, the, the reproduction of society. Um, like there's these amazing, you know, scenes where like the workers go on strike and like and within three or four days, like the city's streets are just like drowning in trash, right? Um, there's this amazing picture of, of Toronto, you know, uh, during one of its garbage strikes where they had to just fill up basketball courts with garbage. Um, so it's this enormous like pressure point, um, you know, and, and it's a place where workers uh, have incredible leverage. Um, so I just became really fascinated in it. And uh, I also started learning about the ways in which, um, you know, waste had just been used in protests, like the Young Lords, um, you know, with their garbage offensive in, in New York City, you know, where they're burning trash in the streets as a way of signifying the, the city's neglect of municipal services. Um, there's a there's amazing garbage blockade that happened, I think, in Kyoto. I, I'll have to go back through my notes, but in which, you know, re residents were just blocking, um, uh, you know, like, uh, blocking garbage trucks from going through their neighborhood because they were building a, a dump in their neighborhood right so i mean i was interested in all these ways in which you know waste becomes a flashpoint of of like uh labor action and and organizing from below you know and because of course like you know we have this problem with waste you know called like carbon dioxide you know like yeah totally <laughs> so you know um so yeah so that's a big part of it um and the other you know the fugue poems are just just poems of anger alienation and black humor written 
you know, after uh, getting my PhD and then like working a bunch of really, really shitty jobs. And, you know, I really had tried to quit academia at that point. Um, so they were coming from that sort of extremely, you know, uh, disenchanted uh, uh, place. Totally. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so so that, that, that's kind of what, what's going on in that book. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds great. Um, and, and, you know, I was just thinking while you were talking about like, you know, like garbage uh, work and what that would be like to be a laborer. You know, we often think about like uh, what is perceived as like higher class kind of jobs or something. There's like a, there's like something that you're working toward, right? Like a, like a goal in the future or something like that. But in this sense, it's almost like a dailiness. Do you think that kind of informed the work or did you think about that uh, in terms of, in terms of the book or your poems at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of people who've been thinking and, and writing about like maintenance work recently, you know, like we have these systems and often what's hidden is, is, is the fact that they need to be kept up and that there's a ton of unseen labor and like repairing, repairing things and, and just like keeping people fed and, and cared mm -hmm. for, um, you know, like triaging systems so that they don't collapse that goes overlooked. And, you know, like uh, sanitation work seems to overlap with that and um you know like i you know in some of the interviews and and audio, you know oral histories uh, of these sanitation strikes i mean you know my my sense was that the workers had a really keen sense of like our job is completely necessary right like yeah. it's hard and it, and it's not valued enough um but but often when making claims for the value of their work they're like you know are you going to do it like right yeah <laughs> yeah, know, yeah like you don't want to and 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 you will lose your mind if we stop picking up your trash right like people totally. would you know <laughs> like it becomes an emergency for cities really quickly if that work is not done yeah absolutely and it's almost like the gauge of which cities are measured is like how clean their cities are you know like um there's like the, those notions of like you know um la and chicago being like dirty cities or something like that and even even uh even a rise in that kind of rhetoric and stuff but i remember in pittsburgh when i was living mm -hmm. there the sanitation workers um <clears throat> they would they would like strike regularly and uh it, it would be you would notice it uh you would notice it very quickly uh just that the amount of trash that that city was able to produce is kind of remarkable i mean historically remarkable but also just now in a contemporary level like you would see alleyways just like you would have to i remember several times like having to get out of my car move a trash can just so i could go through an alley, an alley uh to connect to a main road so it's it's super it, it is super necessary and um definitely uh you know overlooked for sure uh but looking at those histories and uh working at the cornell library and stuff did that so your uh writing process i imagine like transformed in uh or adopted some sort of research practices as well is that like new to this book or i mean i, I know in someone's utopia there's a bit of that as well um you know like um orienting your work in sort of a historical context inside of uh, labor and things like that and, and ideas concerning labor and uh, stuff. So how did the research process kind of focus in on this book or become a part of it rather? Yeah. 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 That's a great question. I mean, I think in my other books, I, I was using sort of, you know, you might call them collage techniques or treating texts. And that did involve a lot of research and it involved a lot of research for me to be able to contextualize the text that I was working with, like, you know, Antonio Pigafetta's, um, you know, uh, description of, of him accompanying Magellan in a certain magnification of the world, like to understand, you know, like the rhetorical moves he's making and the sort of where he's telling a truth and where he's he's you know like playing to the crowd and elaborating things and orientalizing things like you know that took a lot of research to contextualize those texts but what i was doing with those is was treating the texts like using that research to then inform how we would treat the text but you know with this i i was uh helping people do res uh research like labor history research some really smart people like people who knew a lot more about labor history than me but I was learning methodology, you know, like I was the expert in methodology um, because I was trained by, you know, some really fantastic labor, uh, you know, um, 
scholars and and librarians. So you know, um, I uh, I became really interested less in treating the texts and and more in just telling vignettes, right? Telling stories, being a little bit narrative, um, and then letting poetry be sort of a chaotic space um, in between those narratives, right? So. You know, in, in that sense, um, my my practice did change a little bit. And also, I, I just had access to to an archive, like a really, really deep archive um, of labor history and labor publications. And, you know, like that was really exciting. I just wanted to to find more and to put it all together and 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 just to like dig as deeply as possible um, and to tell a kind of like trans historical story that, you know, like people are always like, that's not like. That's not rigorous, um, being trans historical, but but whatever. Like, um, I had unique access to this archive. Like, I, I was in a really unique place to be able to like put together, a, um, like a, a very, you know, a different, you know, like wide range of documents, you know, um, over the the scale of labor history. So, you know, like there's some vignettes that are about 17th century America, and it ends um, thinking about. Um, yeah, one of the most recent garbage strikes or, or sanitation strikes in Pittsburgh, you know, because of all the problems caused to to, uh, to um, waste remediation by COVID, right? All the medical waste that was involved, um, the workers' fears of, of catching shit from, from this high volume of waste, you know, like just not getting gloves or masks. Um, so, you know, I wanted to, to span, span that, that that territory that's uh that's really cool and what a unique opportunity to have that archive that just like get like you know drawn into i find myself sometimes at my own work whenever i'm uh researching something that's particular uh to like a specific moment or a place or family history even things like that just combing through the internet can just be kind of um a vital part of my writing process now and, and maybe that's like a part of like uh, just trying to contextualize this world and this, uh, in this space that we're in and this weird, uh, you know, time in history and things like that. But also it can be like, there's been so many ideas that I've just like discovered just by Googling shit or like watching a YouTube video or combing through, um, you know, the archives that I've, that I've had access to. So, uh, was there something that like you found through your research that you were like, or maybe even a moment where you were like, oh yeah, I gotta definitely include that or. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, th <laughs> I think that, um, there, there, it was just a headline. It, it, like, it was just a headline where I was like, oh, holy shit. Um, this all makes sense now. And it's, uh, and I was, this headline is, fresh in my mind because I took a really shitty screen cap of it to put in the book and I had to find a, a much, much better screen cap um, before it went to print. And so that's what I spent today doing. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's the headline. Um, okay. So this is in the June 20th, I think 1948 Chicago Tribune um, garbage filled at police in Paris general strike. And <laughs> and reading that, I was just like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sick. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's sort of, you know, during it's like a one hour general strike called throughout France post-war, um, called by the communist uh, controlled general confederation of labor, or at least that's how it's described in the um, in the um, in the news. And, and in many of the and I, and I was like, oh, well, is this like a pattern? So I, I started looking up other sort of labor actions involving sanitation workers and there's just this rich history of garbage men sanitation workers uh throwing garbage at the cops and <laughs> and i was like you know I, I think i i think i can start here and build out yeah um, totally yeah you kind of have to include that right yeah yeah um but it was also like you know like you know waste is not just like a shitty part of the job but it's like a it's a potential weapon right like um yeah, it's totally. it's this it's insane material force that is being produced every day um, that these workers are channeling. And to me, there is something really poetic uh, about about that. Um, and, and so I did kind of spiral out from there. And, and if I could say one more thing about something I found, um, 
this stuff did not make it into the project. But one thing I was extremely struck by, um, you know, thinking about what is the place of poetry in in like working class struggle and labor, whatever, you know, it was just like going through old labor publications and it'd be like, this is the Glaciers Union number 54 or whatever, you know, and in their newsletter, you know, they'd have like a poem about glaziering or whatever, or like in the Cobbler's Union about cobbling, you know, about shoe work, you know, so like people, you know, workers were writing this, this material about their own work. And there were these labor publications that were reaching thousands and thousands upon, you know, of, of, of their members, right? So like the, the production and reception of, of labor poetry, you know, was happening within labor publications, you know, um, and that's very different than say, like, the partisan or what we think of as like the left publications in the 20s or something like that. Like those weren't necessarily worker publications. Those were, you know, for worker writers and there was some overlap, but there's this whole other world of of like workers writing and workers poetry within labor publications. And Mark Nowak has said a lot of something about this, but there's a lot, there's, you know, there's just like a lot of work to do there and a lot to think about like, I don't know. How do you actually like get art to reach people? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. I remember um, looking at this uh, anthology called You Work Tomorrow, and it's like a collection of uh, poems taken from union zines and things like that. Um, uh, and uh, one thing I always think about whenever I look at those poems is by like academic standards, and maybe we can get into this. These are kind of, you know, lowbrow for all, for lack of better language, you know, not good poems, right? But, you know, you mentioned a really important part that they reach mm -hmm. like a larger readership than some of, you know, it, uh, any of the poets writing during that time um, that weren't like so-called mainstream or, or whatever. Um, so in terms of like poetry and its function, especially maybe even today, but especially then as well, what do you see that like what do you see that kind of uh where do you come down on that like in terms of like the function of poetry inside of a workforce or inside of a working society or inside of a late capitalist society if we want to do that <laughs> wow okay man Big huge question, question. yeah yeah um... I feel like I'm just going to nibble at the edges with what I say, uh, but it's a really important question. And so, you know, and if I lose the thread, just 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 remind me and put me back on track. <laughs> but one thing, you know, one thing I'll say, it's like kind of a first principles thing for me, but like, um, you know, we have to think of aesthetics and the power of art, language, expression, you know, not, or, you know, we could say poetry. But, you know, we have to think of it like dialectically. We have to think about it historically as historically contingent and operating within really specific ways in really specific contexts, which is to say, like, there's, you know, like there's so many people ready to pronounce like X aesthetic gesture is good and Y aesthetic gesture is bad. And that's just an idealist way of talking about it. Like you can say that. That's great. But once you start looking at specific contexts, specific publications, specific readers, specific struggles, that all just, it just doesn't make sense anymore. So, so you know, what is poetry's function? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, you know, it, it's like, how do we define poetry, right? And function for who? Um, but I think like, you know, what it could be, like what it what it should be is like, you know, like, like thinking intently, like, I think it can do real work within a specific discourse network, right? And we talked about like a labor publication, right? You know, it could be like a weird slack that a union sets up or like a tax thread that a bunch of workers who are organizing have, right? Like that's maybe a specific discourse network and like whatever force it has will, and, and however it's received will depend upon those people and their tastes and their level of experience with art and culture and shit like that. So it, so it depends on those things. And I think it has the most force, you know, when it's, when it's in, you know, close dialogue with those, with those, specific contexts of you know like shared interest 
and and specific contexts of of like struggle um you know like i don't i, I don't have much to say about like the overall like poetry scene but i think there's something mm -hmm. really interesting about thinking about those smaller those smaller contexts and the ways in which art can create solidarity or group identification or disidentification right um like you know like um a bad poem about like uh you know uh cobbling shoes in the 1888 cobbler's journal i'm sure a lot of those cobblers are like fuck yeah i'm a cobbler after reading yeah, that. you know yeah. this person sees me um <laughs> so you know so yeah like you know like yeah and so yeah there's plenty of poor quote unquote poor poor you know baddest bad aesthetics and mm -hmm. you know by conventional standards but you know it could be doing like marvelous work um uh, you know um within its context yeah absolutely and i think um your discussion like the way you talk about like a particular um discourse or community you know it reminds me of like uh your work and how i see that like your your poems are often grounded um in an occasion right like uh your poems are so like centered around uh particular moments um or or jobs or particular days i'm i'm of course talking a little bit more about like someone's utopia in that sense just because i'm more familiar with that one um but uh you know i think i think the occasion of it does really matter right like it, we can we can talk about you know like poetry existing in this ethereal uh place uh where you know uh the internet hosts all of all of our kind of uh readers or material kind of goals and things like that but but um there is something to be said about poems hosted in specific places for specific audience so um with that kind of <clears throat> wind up like in terms of like your new book and um, like the fugue part, because we've talked a lot about the strike part as well, and your kind of um, own work experience, you, you mentioned that you were also, you know, like kind of disenchanted with uh, academia at a certain point. You're back now, though. Is that correct? You've you've swung yeah. back to, to <laughs> yeah, academia. Back. You, you haven't got far. Um, uh, no, but like I tried to get away. <laughs> it has like a funny kind of a hold on us, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, um, just in terms of like that, uh, how did that like kind of inform the book here? Were you aware of this while you were writing? Like, um, I'm always impressed by people who you know are able to work so much and be so productive, like artistically and, and, uh, make time to do that because I am not one of those people. Like I can only, only write whenever I'm complete. I, I like work is completely off my mind, but, um, what was that process like for you working those jobs and trying to write? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, sometimes yeah i mean work just does obliterate my writing you know like it, it it totally takes over um and i think i i've written more about work uh because i've i've been doing just you know it's it's taken over more and more of my time like i'm working harder uh and mm -hmm. you know um have less free time but um you know i i think the sort of occasional nature of it the way in which like i try to work out a, a poetic of just writing about what's going on in my life even if it then goes off on several like oblique you know paths or lines of flight from there um you know just it seems partially like just a, a way for me to reclaim what i've lost to work um, and what has seemed wasted by it, um, if I can uh, reflect on it, you know, work through it, and then also like um, re-engage my uh, both intellectual but also emotive self, and just remember to be really angry or sad, <laughs> you know, like yeah, totally. I mean, I want to understand things, but also um, I don't want to be numb. You know, I don't want to just be tired. 
Um, so I'm trying to like feel the feelings I should have felt while just being completely exhausted <laughs> by, yeah. by the work. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Um, and you were, you mentioned also you were laid off during the pandemic as well. Yeah. 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 Oh, that sucks. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was a pretty low stakes, weird, weird job. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, like I, I got another job pretty quickly, but it was still like, oh, fuck, I just got laid off for the first time. What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, obviously it wasn't me, but it was still, it was a, it was a huge bummer. Um, yeah. 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 That's, that's, um, that'll probably like, uh, you know, recenter, give you some more of your emotive self to maybe, maybe pull from that rage or, or whatever you were feeling at that time, for sure. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, I don't know, like, if this is the right spot here too, but you mentioned like, so I'm in the South in North Carolina and there's such an interesting tension here, um, you know, like between labor unions and, uh, you know, like the working class people, um, and I have my own kind of theory as to like where this kind of comes from in terms of like, you know, like maybe Cold War propaganda or um, some other, you know, like actual policies implemented on a state level in various states here. What do you think it is about the South and maybe even like uh, Southern Appalachia specifically um, that kind of gives folks like this, this kind of jaded impression of unions is just being like, you know, like commies coming in to take your money and, uh, interfere and actually like, uh, you know, not just that, but also like, um, limit the pro the progress of the overall or the individual, you know, inside that environment. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on that? Oh, I mean, I would, I would love to hear, I mean, I would love to hear you say more about it. And, you know, after I say my like just theories, you know, yeah. you want to tell me like your own and and like, you know, more of the, the nature of that tension. But, you know, I mean, because I think the relationship between, yeah, between you know, like unions, geography, like the relationship between like the working class and unions like that. I mean, th th yeah, it's going to depend on a lot of factors like Buffalo. You know, Buffalo is a union town. People people love the unions here. And it was no wonder that like the Starbucks union started here and got plenty of support. Whereas in some towns they would, you know, maybe in more culturally conservative places. Although I don't want to say, I mean, Buffalo is culturally conservative in a lot of sure. ways. But yeah, they might be like, oh, you know, Starbucks workers are just a bunch of blue haired freaks or something. You know, they mobilize that kind of, you know, this, you know, dismissive language. But I mean... I think we should never underestimate the the power of like just 70 years, you know, like 70 years of anti-communism. <laughs> like yeah, it's, totally. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, you know, I guess uh, unions were strongest in, in industrial towns, you know, in the Northeast um, and a lot of industry, you know, like, fled moved to the south because southern politicians cultivated an anti-union uh, legislative and cultural environment so i do know those states you know yeah they were working very hard um to you know to sort of be like we're open for business fuck unions um so i think that's part of it i mean i think probably someone who is better conversant with labor history might also mention um the sort of uh the failed southern strategy uh i think that was what it was called but you know there were a couple big union campaigns that that just fell flat on their face and a lot of the times it was because they didn't empower local organizers because they kind of half-assed it and underfunded it and un under-resourced it and just sort of sent really green organizers you know, in, into places and they were outsiders, right? Like, you know, I mean, I think, uh, maybe was it the textile? Was it when they were trying to organize the textile mills, mm -hmm. you know, they would that send right. like, yeah, like a white organizer from the North into a black workplace. Like, 
instead of finding, you know, recruiting somebody local, right? Like that's, you know. Yeah. Um, so I do think, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say there does seem to be kind of that outsider tension. Like that's what I've noticed. Like, um, you know, you'll just, I'll just hear stories from some of my friends who work um, on the roads or, um, and that I've heard from, you know, just various people about just like the, the attitude towards union uh, people, if they're like, say they're on a workplace and there's like two different crews and, you know, like they're overlapping and things like that. If um, one group is like more unionized, the people on the outside will look at these people as kind of being, you know, like lazy or they don't have to work as hard as, as it, you know, the, the people who are uh, kind of out there on their own. So that's just kind of what I've noticed from my little bit of tension. Just, and, and I do think it is grounded in that, that kind of anti-communism, you know, sentiment that's kind of been ingrained in us and that we still kind of see here today, um, as you know, more people try and, uh, organize locally and you mentioned Starbucks and stuff like that. So, um, mm -hmm. that, that's also kind of what I've noticed just in terms of the, the local mm, culture. That's so interesting. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. I think, I think two things there, like one, I do think it's just an American tendency to think everyone should suffer. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's part of it. You know, yeah. like, oh, <laughs> like, oh man, my life sucks. Then that fucking life should suck too. Um, but, you know, and also I, I do think like that, it's also a failure of like telling labor, like labor history because, yeah. you know, like, like unionism is endemic to the South. There's, you know, things like the, you know, like the sharecroppers unions and things like that. Like, totally, you know, like it existed and and it was organic and, you know, um, in, in many ways, but you know, like that's not, that's not the story that gets told. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There definitely needs to be a stronger emphasis on that for sure. Um, with like the most recent, uh, let's talk a little bit about like the rail strike, uh, because I was thinking about that too. And, and just like, because unions and, and, um, you know, like organizing kind of offers so much hope, I think, um, and make some of the most annoying, difficult, heartbreaking, uh, jobs a little bit more bearable in a lot of ways. Um, and then you kind of see things like, you know, the, the rail strike kind of get intentionally broken up by things like that. So, um, it, it's difficult to, it, it seems like there's always, um, some pressure that, uh, can always be applied, you know, to kind of, uh, wane on the worker, you know, and really kind of almost, um, finesse them into doing, uh, something against their interests, uh, and framed as if it's like this, you know, break that you're getting, right? Like, I think the rail strikers were asking for like, what, 14 days paid sick day. And I don't mm -hmm. think they got any, but they got like a, mm -hmm. a marginal raise over like five years or something. So like, mm -hmm. what did you make of that? Like that kind of experience? Oh man. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just totally, uh, completely disappointing. Um, I mean, the fact that the, the the president basically went out of his way to to break to avert, you know, to, to you know, I, God, I'm I'm getting like tongue tied because I'm so mad already. But yeah, <laughs> you know, like he went out of his way to 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 prevent the you know to prevent the workers from uh, being locked out um, and forcing a bad deal down their throat. Um, he's supposedly the most, you know, pro-union president, but he really bowed down to to the, sh you know, the shareholders of the um, of the rail companies and, you know, their CEOs. Um, so it was just I mean, just capitulating to big business and like the rail workers are already sort of legislated into like to to death in all the ways in which they can't just call a strike they have to go through all these processes of mediation that take years so if they have a problem it takes them years to just get it just you know addressed and arbitrated and that's got to be so exhausting and so frustrating when what they're asking is for just paid sick days to be able yeah. to go to a doctor's appointment or just like you know spend time with your family like, I mean, that's insane. And and he called himself the most pro-labor president. So, so, you know, what does that mean? Like, 
that might even be true, which means that <laughs> yeah, our that... presidents are, are are quite anti-labor, you know, all the way up and down. So, you know, it's it it was just really disappointing to see that happen, you know. Um, although I don't know, not to get too dark here, I think it is um just another reminder that uh that um the Democratic Party is 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 a party of big business. They say all the shit they want to say about um, you know, workers and workers' rights, but they haven't been able to accomplish it. So so what is the left to do when when the Democratic Party is constantly saying it supports labor and then doing the opposite? Like that's that's a really dark place to be. But I think it does mean that we, we should kind of uh not put much hopes in any sort of you know mainstream liberal ideology in, in addressing workers um uh concerns gotta go harder left baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely i think um totally and it and it's also like the way that that was kind of framed as biden and, and even celebrated you know as if the the strike was somehow mediated by him the workers get what they want we get our uh, goods delivered on time you know that was extremely uh, you know kind of frustrating so there's yeah i mean and i was i was just kind of thinking about how just the view of labor in specific instances is strictly through the lens of consumerism and you know and and with waste and mm -hmm. writing about garbage and stuff like that you know it's um it's super interesting to to think about that but moving forward in this country you know you mentioned a little bit about like uh you know the democratic party and things like that like where does your hope lie like where where is it in terms of work in terms of labor um how do you what what can we look forward to joe hall like tell us some good news oh i mean oh, no, I, it, it is cool that like you know starbucks is is unionizing we're seeing like yeah. Yeah. groups yeah. of groups yeah. of workers organize in um businesses and in types of or fields rather uh that you know particularly were overlooked in terms of uh their necessity as workers so that's really cool i mean i didn't follow this <laughs> one as close um as the rail strike but the but the new the new school uh strike um i'm not sure how mm. that ended uh did you follow that one close? Uh, yeah, I mean, not not super close, but they they won. Yeah, yeah. they won. Yeah, so that's there's some hope there, for sure. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. I mean, I I can walk to the first Starbucks that organized, um, and they're the second coffee chain to organize starting in Buffalo, right? The first was this smaller place called Spot Coffee. Um, I can walk from that Starbucks to, you know, my local consumer cooperative grocery store, and they recently organized, you know, and I, if I wear a union pin, you know, their union pin in there, they'll talk to me about it. They'll be like, thanks for the support. And I'll talk to them about how they're, you know, like, oh man, what's going on with bargaining? What are you all gonna ask for? Um, I have a friend, you know, who works for ZeniMax, who's the the QA, um, Wayne Dayberry. He's a quality assurance tester for ZeniMax Games, you know, which is a subsidiary of Microsoft. And, you know, he, he they organized successfully and one of the biggest video game unions. And now part of Microsoft is unionized. So, so that shit's cool, man. And like what I've noted, like, you know, I've watched this stuff on Twitter um, and that's cool. But at the same time, it's like, you know, just going to the grocery store, suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm having conversations with people about, about, you know, unionism and, and like what's going on at their work. You know, about how his union drive is going. So it's not just like the news, it's, it's like everyday life, right? And there's something to that, right? Like the more that it becomes this way of people being able to relate to each other, um, like I think that that could gain a, a certain kind of momentum, right? Like a certain sort of like 
available place within our culture. Um, so, so, you know, hopefully labor power can keep growing. Um, I am, I am optimistic about that. Um, and the other thing I'm optimistic in regard to, at least on paper, and it's much more abstract is just, um, you know, the potential to, to, to form like cooperative economies, you know, within cities, unionized and worker cooperative businesses to work with each other, to work with like neighborhood assemblies and ten and you know tenants unions. Um and and for like progressives to actually take over cities, you know, like call it what you want. Is it like socialist municipalism? Is it something else? I'm not sure. But right, you know, in Buffalo we almost had a socialist elected as mayor, India Walt. So, you know, I think that um if we can find ways to strategically use municipal government to open up space for people to organize with each other, whether it's for productive or reproductive labor, um, that that seems really promising to me. Um, so, so you know, I don't know what we can do on the national level, but I'm I'm pretty excited about the municipal level and what could flow out of that. So yeah. I know that that was a long. <laughs> no, no, that's great. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think like so much of it just starts with the conversation, starts with uh, educating, learning about, you know, like labor history or, or even um, all of these benefits of, uh, of unionizing and things like that, which so many workers are just, you know, ignorant on, you know, uh, in, in a lot of instances, um, or they have entrenched in them so much years of propaganda and misinformation and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that's super, that's super important. Well, mm. excellent. Uh, do you have anything that you'd like to promote your books coming out when? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just say, if, you know, to, to end that, like, yeah, culture is a part of that. Like creating a labor culture is, is part of that. Um, but yeah, so my, my book, my stuff, my book, Fugan Strike, is is going to be out March 2023. Uh, you can find that at, at Black Ocean. Um, dot something. Blackocean.org. Um, my website is joehalljoehall.com. Um, that's, yeah, that's, if, if you want to support uh, a, a, a group in Buffalo, uh, there's a group called Justice for Migrant Families that does uh, incredible work um, for people who are, you know, stuck in in in, in the Batavia uh, Federal Holding Center. Um, so yeah, I promote those things. Yeah, excellent. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for being here, Joe. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Evan. Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, I will pre-order. As soon as I can, is it pre is it pre orderable yet? Yes, I oh, see it on your yes. website. Sick, awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, and uh, anything else that you mentioned too will be there, so folks can kind of find it. But um, hope to have you on again soon. I know we kind of just brushed the surface of work and poetry and all of those things. But um, what's next for you? Are you gonna keep working on uh, any new stuff? Any new poems? Any new books, rather? Oh, man. I mean, there's always something. Like, yeah, just always, just it's just the compulsion. Um, you know, like, if I just stop doing it, I think I'll die. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, like, the the fugues that are in Fugue and Strike, I've got, like, I wrote, like, 300 of them. So I realized, like, that's its own book. So I, I've been working that together. And... Like that's actually just much more of a Buffalo book and I'm excited, really excited to write it and to, to finish putting it together. Um, yeah, and and it's one where it's like, I'm writing a lot more about people and friends. Um, so that's kind of scary, but I, I if I can do it right, I think I'll, I'll feel good about it. Um, so, so I'm working on that. And, um, you know, I'm I'm up on my like eco Marxist shit, and I'm writing some eco Marxist essays. I don't know if those are going to go anywhere, <laughs> but they may just be a form of self education. No, that's great. Yeah, what I'd about love... you? What are you working on, Evan? Oh man. Um. Well, I have two manuscripts right now that I'm trying to uh... see. I'm like, I obsessively have to work on them uh, to make sure they're correct and or at least correct to that moment. 
and uh i've been i've been reworking some i've also been writing more essays now than uh than than poems um just for reasons that we kind of mentioned you know like in terms of like an occasion i feel like i ground i'm better i think um my mind functions a little bit better in terms of grounding essays in occasions and uh yeah so that's what i'm working on right now and this podcast a little bit i don't know we'll we'll figure it out as we kind of get going but that's kind of it maybe some video sound stuff too um yeah yeah nothing nothing too um refined as always so as as long as i have it and i can fiddle with it i'm going to change almost everything about it uh so we'll see <laughs> yeah well yeah i'd love to, to read some of what you're writing um because i yeah man occasional stuff that's where it's at for me right now yeah 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 hell yeah hell yeah yeah well i'll send some over um i would love to have you back nice. and we can talk more Cool. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. Have <laughs> a good right, year. Um, holler yeah, if yeah, I can yeah. do anything. Okay. Thanks. Right. Same. Same. See ya. Yeah. So I'm going to read some poems from my book, Fugue and Strike. Um, the first one's called Consumer Cooperative Bookstore uh, for Orchid Cugini. De-skilled in vomiting gold fog, the register of factory, the words stepping on the pedal of your tongue. Email de-skilled my tongue, how it could hover with your raw parts, vomiting gold. Vomiting gold, you bag a book, watch it go through the bindery, pulp at both ends. On Monday, the manager confiscated your N. On Friday, your O. You try to say no, and there's just a scab in the air. During the Friday rush, you think you're being eaten alive by a pack of small dogs. And on Monday, you realize that's too dramatic. You're just a chew toy for know-it-all adjuncts of the ruling class, which might be worse. Anyway, you go to say this to your coworker, but you both end up vomiting gold. So this is called Fugue 41, laid off at a cannabis grow upstate New York, and I was laid off at a cannabis grow in upstate New York. Mist pebbles, plastic sheeting the hoop house grid, pot doubles us over seed tray tables and wraps our backs in fists of stressed muscles and squeezes. Seeds spill and volunteer hemp climbs and genders unsupervised. Time clock apps, gas station lunches, and nightlight ship that is a fungus threaded through its crew, the game they carry in their mind before we all get fired on a whim, but leave our technique behind. For some beard in Ray-Bans, who wishes his phone were a gun. The sun drops on green hands pressed by paychecks to oil. The fugue, the fugue number 41, dropped on green hands, grown into green hands, crushed into oil. Fugue number 42, fireballs number two. Fireballs, pastel squares and snail snares, fireballs of asters, pastors, mouths wrapped around 100 flowers, green stems, fireballs, balls of fire and fire. The world is not fire, just fireballs as liars and liars of fireballs that peeled this dome of rain away. Rivulets of pearls you could call your own down the plate glass and I could drink beer in the natural light of 2013 like a salamander under a rock and you could zip the fireball up around you. The house would burn, you'd be the same, and I'd still be left trying to think of the title of the Franco O'Hara poem with a beautiful slope of urine and someone banging on metal, though I'm trying to be over Frank. There he is in my stupid brain, his thigh-like slope of urine and banging on a piece of rebar in a dream, which is often the only information that matters. More whole than a whole note, the seed of fire and a rope of salt water slung window to window, where you lived in 2009 in Baltimore in the fugue number 42. Kept the pay stub, but not the pay. Not the damp matches of broken chemistry or fireballs replaced in the store windows. Fireballs, thin film, crumbling mist, snails, and pastel squares. I don't remember you. I just remember that I don't remember you in the fugue number 42. So the other main theme of the book is, is waste. 
and its intersection uh, with with labor. And so there's a long piece on on garbage strikes and people using garbage as a means of protest. Um, and so I'm going to read some sections from that. It kind of toggles back and forth between poetry and prose. Um, and the whole piece is is just called a uh, trash can emoji fire emoji. Um, it's just those emojis, but you know that's how I, I guess I have to say it in an audio form. For it is spilling and spilling from several terminals. For it is coming and here and coming. For that as long as we live and after is a flood brimming to the lip. For it requires so much work beyond planning piled against the windows, the eyes crossing boundaries to become its own life blooming, shit exuberant. Thank you, drain. Thank you, gravity. Nope, no, no, nope, no. 1.3 kilograms of matter, some fossil fuel, and a two gram microchip iPhone, 22 chips, a 12 year old JG dig waste, 26 junk expressed beyond production in exchange and consumption. Note, stop humping rag picker. Continued from page two. From thousands of garbage strikes, those documented, easy to find. New York, New York, 1667. Mumbai, India, 1878. Toronto, Ontario, 1918. Paris, France, 1948. St. Petersburg, Florida, 1966. New York, New York, 1968. Memphis, Tennessee, 1968. St. Petersburg, Florida, 1968. Miami, Florida, 1968. Lubbock, Texas, 1968. Cleveland, Ohio, 1968. Charleston, South Carolina, 1969. New Orleans, Louisiana, 1969. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 1969. Atlanta, Georgia, 1970. London, Great Britain, 1970. Tokyo, Japan, 1973. New York, New York, 1975. Atlanta, Georgia, 1977. Detroit, Michigan, 1978. San Antonio, Texas, 1978. Tuscaloosa, Alabama, 1978, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 1986, New York, New York, 1990, Toronto, Ontario, 2002, Chicago, Illinois, 2003, Athens, Greece, 2006, Vancouver, British Columbia, 2007, Naples, Italy, 2008, Seattle, Washington, with Columbus, Ohio, with Buffalo, New York, with Mobile, Alabama, 2012, Guangzhou, China, 2008, 2012 through 2013, Birmingham, UK, 2017, Paris, France, 2018. Abstract, a work to be with people, with multitudes, not to take shit, work and obsession with turning trash around as tactic. Quote, art must be destroyed in order to not become merchandise or an institutional icon, end quote. That's Herbierto Apez with years work bad and failure to fix it with anyone go though we try dumb hope in my mouth no stop humping ruins if this is trash send it back here's some prose 1677 dutch amsterdam had become new york and new york city dutch cartman waste carriers became some of the first workers in the colonies to face punishment for striking. Initially, there was no division of labor for these carters. Carters hired themselves to carry any goods, lumber, dung, grain, felons to the gallows. Their 1667 contract with the city recognized that they were a fellowship that could fix rates. In exchange, the city required them to perform various municipal duties, such as fighting fires, maintaining roads, and taking turns on Saturday afternoons, carting household dirt to a dump for 10 stivers Siwan. Carters became semi-official city workers in a waste market mediated by the colonial state. And it kind of goes on like that for a while, but the prose doesn't, you know, it's not as scintillating in an audio format, so I'm just going to skip back to, to poetry. Uh, in this piece. Trash can emoji, fire emoji. 
AZ server farm churns the image of a tidiness personality, blasts fuel and tons burning to cool itself before collapse. Extraction flood hits thrift store that the other of production of light dematerialized distributes far beyond the horizon. I stream the image of the moon hollowed out then caving in on its huge and heavenly self from the intake of the server farm's mind into its surface. In a pinch, policed inventory becomes waste. Looters transform to life. The contents of my mouth, butthole and colon, ATM for penthouse stranger CRT, monitor up to eight pounds lead, two pounds copper desktop, 620 pounds of rock drill of the horizon for the island deep sea, for the continental shelf, the asteroid moon and lunar dust, for the horizon, the drill of the horizon, for the sublime is a scraping drill. Rest extensa is your being, your being, your being, and your being to them. Hired to take a bunch of shit from her cerebic boss, your job is to make X happy and records it, delivers the load, whole shifts of my only life spent clicking shit in the group inbox into the trash, last in, first out, no one else would bother will there be beautiful city or ward shittatoriums many gendered and de-gendered single and multi-stalled spaces of beautiful excretion will there be a base of public salvage and reclamation disassembly of the greatest machines of violence will we celebrate the decommissioning and destruction of pernicious things and institutions will the work of disposal be in perpetual rotation of purely elected redeem the hours spent soaking someone else's sour feelings exporting memory and account in bags of tumor fertilized sediment with clear labels are a vintage provenance thick bottom tumbler with alphabet block sized ice cube melting in cocktail of lead dioxin Trump Towers flush their shit. Ice field offices flush their shit. The Weston Hotel fellow tenants of Buffalo's ice field office draping a point of carceral intake with the facade of comfort flushes its shit. If we can't separate ourselves from our shit, if we don't involve it in some other process, we die. If the rich can't export their guilt past the gates of their community... If we don't let the execs out of the vacuum bag, if no trash left the police station or gated communities, if no trash left the boardrooms of Silicon Valley, if no trash left the White House or last three bosses' offices, if all I do is talk. So that's that's a bit of the, the garbage stuff. <laughs> um, and I had uh, one more poem. And I, I wrote this, uh, you know, it's kind of an occasional poem it's doggerel, it's disposable. Um, but uh, I wrote it in response to the uh, the Buffalo blizzard and, and in memory of the 41 people who, who died in Erie County, um, most of them in Buffalo, which is my city. And, you know, these are people just trying to, to get by and, and survive. And many of them were just let down by the, the total collapse um, in municipal services. It was like the first time in 200 years, you know, the fire department just wasn't working. Um, and the mayor had this awful response, you know, non-response to it. And, and when he did make a, a statement, the first thing he did was, you know, blame people for their own deaths and told us, you know, that that he, that he told us to prepare. And um, and then he attacked looters, right? So instead of commenting on on the loss of the city, you know, he went straight to, to criminalizing people. Um, so, so this is for for our mayor, uh, Byron Brown, and you know I have gentle poems. There are plenty of gentle poems in the book, and I didn't read any today, but that's kind of where I'm at. Um, so this is called "Blizzard of '22 Kills 41." Uh, the mayor blames the dead for their death. Mayor Byron Brown says, "Do not leave home. Do not go outside during the blizzard." While Byron Brown wraps himself in another blanket in his house on Blaine where he just lost power in the howling, pounding, howling blizzard. Don't go outside, Byron Brown tweets while eating his last cold PB&J, the fixings bought with the last 20 of his last paycheck, washing dishes, the only job he could get with his kind of record. Don't leave your house, Byron Brown whispers to himself in the frost stenciled dark as snow pours through the windows, the frame empty now that the wind has taken away the cardboard and duct tape that served as a frame. The landlord said he'd fix the day he put down 1400 in cash to start renting the place. Don't go outside, Byron Brown says to Byron Brown. As his phone dies, the snow doesn't and his stomach groans. His head separates from his head. 
Looters are the lowest of the low, Byron Brown says, putting on his fifth shirt. Lowest of the low, as he just barely tugs up a pair of pants around his other two pairs of pants. Don't go outside, Byron Brown says to Byron Brown, as he picks up a hammer to descend the unlit stairs and hovers behind the icy door. Lowest of the low, he whispers. Time passes. Lowest of the low, you climb the stairs. You open the door. You're doubled over by hunger. You get back under three blankets and a quilt. You trudge through waist-high drifts. You see your breath. You see your breath. Your feet are wet, and the wind splinters needles across your cheeks as you fall asleep in dreamless dream, trudging through your blankets as if an anchor, as if a shroud toward Buffalo's golden corner where an incandescent ball burns over rows of chips. You turn in bed onto what side? It's so cold. You feel like you're crowned in ice. Lowest and low, Byron Brown says to Byron Brown. Says don't go outside as his heart slows down, as his elbow bitterly registers his numb-fisted hammer blows to the padlock on the gates between Byron Brown and his life. Lowest of the low, Byron Brown says to Byron Brown, weeping in the cold, weeping into his frostbite bloated fingers. Don't go outside, Byron Brown says to Byron Brown, in the cocoon of every fabric he owns. Lowest of the low, coldest of the cold, Byron Brown finds Byron Brown, ice encrusted in his house, and the pulse of his dream stops. Oh.